0: of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue, knowledge, and to knowledge, temperance, and to temperance, patience, and to patience, godliness, and to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ." But he that lacketh these things is blind, and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Wherefore, the rather brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. For so an entrance shall be ministered unto you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This morning in our confession, we're going to be dealing with the subject of an infallible assurance of faith. An infallible assurance of faith. When Peter penned that second epistle, uh, he would began that letter by reminding them of who they were and who they are in Christ Jesus. He begins to remind them that as a partaker of this precious-like faith, that they were to add to their faith, and then he gave a listing of the things that they should be giving themselves to, uh, adding to their faith knowledge and adding temperance and patience and to patience, godliness, brotherly kindness. Uh, these are the fruits or the results of a changed life, of a soul that's been converted. So Peter was writing to believers. Uh, these, this opening chapter of 2 Peter is not something the unbeliever can do. The unbeliever cannot add to their faith because they have not faith. So Peter is clearly writing to those who, are obtain, who have obtained these precious promises. When we talk about assurance, as we've been talking about in our uh, chapter 18 study of the confession, we've been dealing with the subject of assurance and the knowledge and the confidence that we are indeed a child of God. So this morning, as we consider paragraph two in just a moment, the second paragraph of chapter 18 in the confession begins by making this uh, assertion. Uh, This assertion is that there is an assurance that believers do experience, and that assurance is an infallible assurance of faith. Now, when we see the word infallible, and we're gonna read that uh, paragraph in just a moment, but when we come across the word infallible, We need to remember that this word infallible comes from two Latin words, which mean literally not deceiving, or for example, not liable to mistakes or any form of deception. It is incapable of error, and it is not liable to fail. So when we're talking about something that is infallible, it is impossible for that to fail, it is impossible for that to deceive us. It is impossible for that which is true to lead us astray. So no one here today wants faith that is not assured. Uh, No one wants to wonder and doubt and to question, am I really a child of God? Am I really in the faith? Have I truly repented of my sins? Have I truly believed on the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, if you look with me at paragraph two, notice how the confession writers penned the words. And again, in every paragraph, in every chapter, the confession writers were very careful in their choice of words. They were very careful in their expressions that they used, and they are very precise as to what they understood about what faith is. And you'll see this phrase, an infallible assurance of faith, contained right in the paragraph. Paragraph 2, chapter 18 of assurance of grace and salvation says this, this certainty is not a bare conjectural and probable persuasion grounded upon a fallible hope, but an infallible assurance of faith founded on the blood and righteousness of Christ revealed in the gospel, and also upon the inward evidence of those graces of the Spirit unto which promises are made, and on the testimony of the Spirit of adoption, witnessing with our spirits that we are the children of God, and as a fruit thereof, keeping the heart both humble and holy." So the confession writers, understanding even the teaching of what we read in 2 Peter chapter 1, understood that the believer's assurance of faith can be infallible because that assurance of faith is built upon an infallible foundation. The foundation in which this infallible assurance is built upon is not built upon man's confidence in himself or his ability to do, but is built upon the confidence that he may have in the glorious gospel of what Jesus Christ has done. So our assurance is infallible because the foundation on which it is built is infallible. Now you'll notice in that very first phrase, they said that it's not bare conjecture or probable persuasion. Now there's a tremendous difference between a probable persuasion and an infallible assurance of faith. A probable persuasion means that much of all the evidence points to that conclusion. In other words, I could say it's highly likely these things are so, or I can have a probable expectation or hope that it's going to turn out the way in which I anticipate it will. Something that's probable doesn't mean it's going to happen. It just means that that is a high likelihood. Now sometimes people say there is a 90% probability this is going to take place only to find out it doesn't take place. Your faith, my faith, is not based upon probable persuasion. Now a lot of people have set their hope in their probable persuasion. That probable persuasion is all the things lined up that tell me that I'm probably saved. I am probably going to heaven. I am probably forgiven of my sins. Now, no one who's a child of God here today wants that type of faith, a faith that's just probable persuasion. But rather, the confession writers, and they did footnote and and, uh, identified 2 Peter 1, verses 1-11 through as one of these foundational truths as to where this infallibility comes from. So if our hope of salvation was based on something that might prove to be faulty, or remember what the word infallible means, deceptive. Now probable persuasion can be deceptive. Uh, I can probably persuade myself to believe and think a lot of things. If you continue to hammer away at me about something, and you continue to tell me and tell me and tell me over and over again, you might get me to come to the place where I say, you've just about got me. When the Apostle Paul was standing before the kings and, and Agrippa, he what did Agrippa say? You've almost persuaded me. You've almost persuaded me to be a Christian. Probable persuasion can be deceptive. The infallible hope that we have here, notice he says it's not grounded upon a fallible hope, but an infallible assurance of faith. He doesn't say an infallible hope of faith. He says an infallible assurance of faith. Now, as we see here this morning, this hope and assurance when it's done biblically, go together. So if we only had a probable persuasion or we had a fallible hope, the best that we could ever assume or the best we could ever hope for is to say, well, we are probably safe. We are probably in a safe zone. Christ did not die for his people to give them a probability faith. He did not die for his people in order that we might spend our lives wondering and wondering, am, am I truly in the faith? As I mentioned when we opened this particular chapter, most of our false assurances or most of our struggles with assurance, again, is based upon the probability aspect of this. Have I done enough to convince God to let me in? to make me acceptable. And we all already know the answer to that. We can't do enough or anything that would gain us acceptance with God. So if we only had a probable faith or a probable hope, we could only speak with what seems likely, not with certainty. Now, the believer's hope, according to the confession this morning, is built upon an infallible foundation. So hope itself I want you to get this principle. Hope itself takes on an infallible character. So he's not talking about hope that's based on persuasion that's probable. He's talking about an infallible hope. You know, we can hope for a lot of things. This is a crude illustration. We might get snow again on Thursday. I hope that's not the case. I hope it's not. But that's all it is. Now, as the day gets closer, they will give us probability numbers. And the probability numbers will go up and down. One day we're going to get a foot, the next day we're going to get a dusting, and then we'll get somewhere in the middle, or we'll get absolutely nothing. That's Ohio in the winter. There's no certainty of it. The only certainty we get is after it has taken place. So the only certainty we know about the weather is after the event takes place, and then that's when all the people who knew what it was going to be come out and say, see, that's what I thought would happen. But you didn't guarantee me that before. Our salvation is not something that you're waiting until you die to see if you were right. To wait and see if all these things were so. You're to have an infallible hope today as a child of God. Why? Because your hope is built on an infallible foundation. Our assurance will prove to not be a deceptive assurance because the foundation of our hope is eternally secure. Now, we also know throughout Scripture that the Bible itself declares that the believer's hope is sure and trustworthy. For example, in Hebrews 6.19, the believer's hope is called an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast. An anchor of the soul. An anchor holds. An anchor prevents you from drifting. An anchor keeps you from going to the places that you do not want to go to. Now, specifically... The confession of faith here points in this particular paragraph to three infallible, what we'll call foundational stones. These three infallible foundations, foundational stones is that which our assurance is built upon. Now, as you'll see in this paragraph, two of these foundation stones have reference to what the Spirit of God does specifically inside the believer. Now, both of those stones are infallible Because they involve the supernatural work of the Spirit. The Spirit does not do a work in a deceptive manner. If a person says that they are unsure of their salvation, that is not the Holy Spirit riling up uncertainty. The Spirit is going to confirm that which is sure. He's not going to make a believer wonder, are you really in the faith? Have you really done enough? That's what happens when you're probably persuaded. But this infallible hope is based upon the work of the Spirit. Both has to do with the gracious ministry that happens within the believer. Now the third, and I think what we will find out is the most important foundational stone, refers not to an experience within the believer, but to a historical event. The church is being rattled to its core by experiences. Churches are selling themselves as a place to come experience God. Often it's not an experience of God, it's an experience of what your flesh wants. If you want to experience God, again, we should have an experimental knowledge, an experiential knowledge. We should experience God, but it's not a way that's founded upon our emotions, it's founded upon that which God declares Him to be. If you want to be confronted with who God is, read His Word. If you want to to experience God, study His Word. I did not plan an experience for you today. It never came in my mind today that I need to plan an experience for you or that it would make you joyful or happy or sad or that we were going to do this to get you riled up, this to calm you down. It was simply going to be we're going to open the Word of God, we're going to read it, we're going to study it. We're going to pray. We're going to sing doctrinally sound songs. And we're going to preach the Word of God. Now, that will be an experience. But it will not be an experience that's going to feed your flesh. It's going to feed your soul. The anchor of the soul is not your experiences. But yet, this infallible hope. This third, histor- this third foundational stone, and most important, is the first one that the confession writers mention. So let's look at these three foundational stones this morning. Go back with me and look at the confession again, and look at the, the very first stone that we're given here. It says this, This certainty is not a bare conjectural and probable persuasion grounded upon a fallible hope, but an infallible assurance of faith, here it is, founded on the blood and righteousness of Christ revealed in the gospel. That's the first stone. The blood and the righteousness of Christ revealed in the gospel. That is foundational stone number one. The blood and righteousness, when we think about his blood and we think about his righteousness, We have to remember that first and foremost, our assurance is founded on an actual event. It's founded on an actual atoning sacrifice. It's founded on a work that did not just make, make salvation possible, but actually accomplished that which was needful. It accomplished the salvation that we needed. Our assurance often starts with, by asking a person a question, did you... Do. Did you pray? And we even make this mistake. Did you repent? It's not the starting point. The starting point is the blood and righteousness of Christ. That is the foundational stone. Because without the blood and righteousness of Christ, your repentance would be meaningless. I'm not sure we fully understand that principle. It is not your repentance that actually saved you. It's the foundational stone of the blood and righteousness of Christ that provided salvation. The repentance, which is a gift of God. But people turn this all around and say, well, I know I have faith because I repented. There wasn't his righteousness. If there wasn't his blood, your repentance would be nothing but a probable persuasion. I can use the right language to confess to convince somebody to repent of their sins or to acknowledge their wrongdoing. You realize us as parents, we've done that all of our children's lives. I'm not saying it's all bad, but they do something wrong. And we convince them by our correction of them that they need to understand they did something wrong. Now, every time that they say, I'm sorry, I did wrong. Do you think they're fully owning up to everything they did? Or do you think they're actually doing that to maybe get you off their back? You might say a five-year-old can't do that. I beg to differ with you. They can acknowledge that they've done wrong. They can acknowledge that they're guilty of something. But just saying I did wrong doesn't equate to the conversion of my soul. That's why... Even with children, we're very careful in our evangelism towards them that we don't try to put something in their heart that shouldn't be there and try to tell them, by doing this, you have placed your name and your certainty in the Lamb's book of life. Again, who knows the heart? Only God knows the heart. Man only knows what he he did. This foundational stone that the confession writers were talking about is much of that stone that Peter was writing about, and specifically in verse number 10 of that text we read this morning. He says, wherefore, the rather brethren, give diligence to make your calling and election sure, for if ye do these things, ye shall never fall. Now that's a direct, uh, it's directly in line of what Peter said in verse 9. But he that lacketh these things is blind and cannot see afar off, and hath forgotten that he was purged from his old sins. Peter's context was the reality that if you are not adding to your faith, if these things aren't happening, you're still blind. And yet he says, make your calling and your election sure. So this foundation of the blood and righteousness of Christ that's revealed in the gospel, it is through Christ alone that the believer is, in fact, reconciled to God. Now, why is Christ's work the accepted work? Oftentimes, we make this mistake. We say all that was needful was for Christ to die on the cross. Yes, he did die on the cross, but you know, before he went to the cross, in order for the gospel to be effectual, in order for our salvation to be sure and secure, he had to live a perfectly obedient life. His obedience was required even before he went to the cross. Everyone likes to jump ahead and say, Christ was obedient unto death, the death of the cross. He obediently went to the cross, but do you realize he had to perfectly fulfill the law and be obedient, perfectly obedient, before he ever went to the cross. So this foundation is based upon Christ's perfect obedience. He lived a life that every other human being has failed to live. None of you, including myself, have ever lived a perfectly obedient life. I would dare say you've already disobeyed God today in some way. Yet Christ was perfectly obedient. Christ always did what was right. He always did his Father's will. He never went against his Father's will, nor did he carry out his own plan that was not his Father's. Jesus Christ the Son and God the Father were not at odds at any point in time where Christ was saying, well, here's what the Father wants me to do, but here's what I want to do. Or was Christ saying, here's what I want to do, but the Father doesn't agree with that. He always did that which pleases the Father. So because of his perfect obedience, he also had perfect righteousness. Now, because of his righteousness and because of his perfect obedience in conversion, in salvation, his perfect righteousness is fully transferred to the account of every believer so that I can claim his righteousness and his blood, not my blood and not my righteousness. That is the foundational stone. But what happened to our sin? See, we've got a problem. We've got a a, a dual thing happening here. Not only do we have to understand his perfect righteousness, but our sin had to be laid upon him. He who knew no sin became sin for us. He did not become a sinner. Our sin was placed upon him. And he absorbed the full wrath of God the Father, not for his own sin, not for his disobedience, but for our disobedience. He was our substitute. He is the perfect sacrifice. He was the representative for his people. He, in fact, did bear in his own body a real punishment that we deserved. So the confession writers, along with even what Peter is saying here, the blood and righteousness of Christ revealed in the gospel is the basis of the believer's justification, but it's also the basis of our assurance I'm justified by the blood and righteousness of Christ and I'm also assured by the blood and the righteousness of Christ. That's the difference. When we start talking about Reformed theology, we're talking about that which takes all of it off man and puts all of it upon God. All of it now becomes God-centered, not man-centered. God is in no way, shape, or form depending upon what man does or does not do. He is not reacting to man acting according to his natural will. As we've said many, many times, God's reaction was not a reaction to Adam. He knew Adam would fall, he knew that there would be sin. So the gospel reveals to us the perfect work of the Lord Jesus Christ. He died on the cross for sinners, and that work is perfect and complete. John 19:30 gives us just a glimpse of this. John 19.30, coming to the end of the book of John, Jesus' earthly ministry is coming to a close. One of the uh, most recognizable verses and the most recognizable expressions is found in this verse. When Jesus, therefore, had received the vinegar, he said, it is finished, and bowed his head and gave up the ghost. That it is finished was not just one aspect of salvation. It was not God's part of the deal. It was not just part of God's part, or God's part of the plan. And now you, sinner, you come up to where I am. You meet me in the middle and we'll call it a completed transaction. Yet that's how it's preached in many places. That Jesus, did, Jesus has done all he can do to save you. Now the rest of it's up to you. No, he said it is finished. The it is more than just his death on the cross. He's talking about the complete work of redemption. Justification. Our assurance. God's purposes have have been completely obeyed and fulfilled. The entirety of what God the Father required had been paid. To suggest that man has to add something to what God, Christ has already done would suggest that man can do something to pay off his or her own sin debt. There's not enough of my own righteousness in the world to add anything to my salvation. It is finished. We learned in Hebrews 7.25 during our morning studies of the book of Hebrews that he is able... Remember, there's a difference in actually doing it and then able to save sinners to the uttermost. 1 John 1, 7 and Jude 24 teach us his blood washes sinners completely so that they stand blameless before God. But let's not make the mistake this morning of thinking that, all right, he's already done everything, so there's nothing that people have to do. That's why the gospel is based upon the finished work of Christ. Every man, every woman everywhere is commanded, not invited, but is commanded to repent and believe the gospel. And it is only until they repent and believe the gospel that this finished work of Christ is applied, but that's not man doing. So we're not taking this position that says man just kind of sits there and just waits for God to do it and then says, okay, I guess that happened sometime during my life. That's what goes on to the edge of what is called hyper-Calvinism, where they begin to say, listen, you have no part of this at all, you don't do anything, you just sit there, and if you are, you are, if you're not, you're not. There's a big difference here, and the difference is, is that when this is applied, it's applied when the people of God, when God's people, those who God the Father gave to the Son before the foundation of the world, actually truly do trust and believe in Christ. They truly do repent. That's why Peter, when he used those words, those, that preciousness of this, the preciousness of knowing, the preciousness of having these things. Remember what we just read. He said that these things, these whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these you might be partakers of the divine nature. This is something that we are actually partakers of. We have great promises in the word and reformed theology and the confession writers do not discount this. Romans ten thirteen tells us people are promised this. This will, this will just do away with anybody who says you teach a gospel that somebody can't get saved. No, here's the reality. Romans ten thirteen tells us this, that all who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. That is 100% true. There is nobody who's being, cannot call. The reality is, he's saying those who do call will be saved. There are some who will never call. The promise is all who call will be saved. So if you call on him, you call on him in faith, you call on him in trust, you call on him in repentance as the Bible commands, you are saved. With, but without the perfect, obedient work of Christ, not only on the cross, but also in His earthly life, there would be no assurance possible. Exercising faith is a conscious act on the part of a believer. It's not some hidden thing you don't know is there. One of the... One of the uh, accusations against those who teach this and those who teach the bible biblically is that you just teach that it just overcomes them and they have no part in it no faith is the faith is an active conscious faith that's what peter was writing about he was writing you're not going to have just some dead dried up no faith at all But you're elect and you're saved. No, he's going to say it's going to be marked by fruit. It's going to be marked by assurance. It's going to be marked by you adding to these things diligently. But the evidence of salvation oftentimes we put is saying, well, I prayed the sinner's prayer. And sadly, there are people that have, they're staking their entire eternity on their praying the sinner's prayer. Study Matthew 13 and we find out that there are many who receive the word initially. The word is received, but it's received on stony ground. It's received on hard ground. The seed does not take root. Those people with certainty walked away saying, I am in fact a believer, but yet they fell away. Did they lose their salvation or were they never saved to begin with? They were never saved to begin with people say i like the idea that they just actually by their 100 percent free will just rejected it sure that's what humanity wants to feel we we want to be in control of everything people say i don't like the fact god's in control of my salvation we don't want anybody in control of any part of our life we do not by nature like authority and we certainly don't like god to be authoritative in our salvation how many people are raging against that doctrine I can say that phrase, salvation is of the Lord, in certain Baptist circles, and I will get crucified for that. Why are we so angry that God is the author and the finisher and the completer of salvation? It's the most glorious truth they're going to hear all day. I don't want my salvation based upon me. Because if it does, then I'm in a lot of trouble. But yet I can have assurance today because of what Christ has done. The second foundational stone, notice he says, and also upon the inward evidence of those graces of the Spirit which promises are made. Now this is where the evidence of fruit in a believer's life. The foundation number two, the foundation stone here is the inward evidence of those graces of the Spirit unto which promises are made. A person who has genuine faith will be filled and indwelt with the spirit will by good works and obedience show forth fruit in the first epistle that Peter wrote 1 Peter chapter number 1 look at verse number 4 and we've we've looked at this before but he says Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness, though manifold temptations. That the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found under the praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Whom, having not seen, ye love, in whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory." Receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you. Peter, again, speaking of those individuals, people being kept by the power of God. We cannot say that the entire world right now is being kept by the power of God. He's talking about those who are already converted, those who are already saved. The Bible does nowhere indicates a universal salvation. There are people, there are Baptist churches who are moving to universal salvation. They have started doing it subtly and they're moving quickly. That they're ultimately saying in the end, uh, everyone's going to be saved anyway. It is happening in Baptist churches. Now, that doesn't mean you paint every Baptist church with a broad brush and say, okay, all the Baptists are going downhill. But it is happening. That we can claim as a non-believer the same promises that God made to his people. That a non-believer can say, I'm kept by the power of God. He can't say that. Now, God is gracious even to the unjust. It's the illustration we always give how God is gracious enough to allow the unsaved atheistic farmer to plant a field and yet his field produces a great crop even though he curses God. Don't say God's not gracious to the unbeliever. God is demonstrating his grace every single day. But what Peter was writing about being kept by the power of God was a certain assurance that you can have knowing you are in fact a child of God. Fruit becomes evident in your life. Jesus himself in Matthew 7 pointed to the reality of the evidence of this as being an indicator of a certain changed nature. Matthew 7 verse 16, he's warning about false prophets in the previous verse. Verse 15 he says, Beware false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes or thorns or figs of thistles? It's interesting. Even Jesus taught, you can tell a false prophet by the fruit he produces. And then he goes on and he says, but you can also tell the fruit of a believer. Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. A good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore, by their fruits ye shall know them. And that's what leads us into that terrifying statement. Again, if you're a believer today, verses 21 and 22 should not frighten you. Let me say that again. If you are truly in Christ today, verses 21 and 22 should not frighten you. Should we take it seriously? Yes. But he says not everyone. Right? Right? Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. The context has been fruit evidences of a unbeliever, a false prophet, and evidences of a true believer. His indication was that it was those false prophets in the context he was talking about that they went around saying, we've done all these wonderful things in your name. And he says, in the end, I will say I never knew you. So that second foundation stone is the inward evidence of those grace of the spirit, which the promises are made. Thirdly, the third foundation stone, I do want to get through this this morning, so bear with me is the testimony, notice the next expression there, and on the testimony of the spirit of adoption, witnessing with our spirits that we are the children of God. So the spirit witnesses to believers that they are, in fact, God's children. Romans 8, one of the classic past passages for that is Romans 8 verses 15 and 16 For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. The spirit bears witness. That's a foundational stone. That is a stone that reminds us and confesses to us that you are indeed a child of God. Paul when he wrote to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 12 he says now we have received not the spirit of the world but the spirit which is of God that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God remember we started this chapter by talking about last week god wants us to know and be assured it's it's not some hidden treasure in a field We we are intended to know that ye may know that you have eternal life, that you may know that you are a child of God. The Spirit bears witness to this. Now, why it is important to know that those three foundation foundation stones are definitely uh, that which our uh, faith is founded upon, Uh, there are some who only rely on one or two of them or none of them some say all i need to know is what the spirit prompts me no you need to have evidence people often say well i know that i'm saved because the holy spirit tells me and you ask them the question do you have any, any fruit in your life no the spirit tells me i'm saved folks that's dangerous ground that's the ground that just simply says how do you know that prompting is the right spirit why did, first, why did John in those epistles write, try every spirit to see if they be of God? You realize there's wicked spirits in the world that are intended to deceive you, but the Holy Spirit himself will not deceive you. But what greater way would, would the demons of this world use than to prompt you? You're okay. You have nothing to worry about. But you have no evidence. So these three pillars, they all go together. These three stones, these are, what's, these are what is holding up the very foundation of our assurance. Some people sling the other way, and they say, fruit is all that matters. Our outward is all that matters. This is what leads to that radical idea in the church that you really need to be doing everything and it's all that you can do going 100 miles an hour to make sure that you're saved. It's that church work concept that makes you feel like I have to do everything or I must only be a child of God. And it's often prefaced by the idea, if you're truly saved, you'll do this. He'll say, brothers and sisters, there's a sign-up sheet on the back wall. If you're truly a believer, you'll sign up and you'll be the first one on that list. Folks, I'm telling you, Christian service is great. But you are not going to hear me put a sign-up sheet on the wall and connect your salvation to doing that and say, if you're really saved, you'll be, you'll be a sign-up on line number one. And then I'm going to run back there and say, hey, so and sos line number one. They must really love the Lord Jesus because they signed up first. You're not going to hear me do that. Now, should we serve the Lord? Absolutely. Should you connect that with your salvation saying, this is how I know I'm really saved because I was, I was within the top five of the sign-up sheet? There was five sign-up sheets across the back wall, and I signed up for all five of them. That better not be your only foundational stone. Remember, that primary foundational stone is the blood and righteousness of Christ, which had nothing to do with you. Sometimes for people, it is difficult to see fruit in their lives. Sometimes it's difficult to identify it doesn't mean it's not there but do you realize that all fruit is not just seen by the human eye you want to know what plagues most senior citizens when they get older is when they can't do what they used to be able to do and some of them they they sit in a nursing home and they feel as if there's no fruit in their life anymore they feel like there's no evidences anymore Now we stand back and we say, well, they're senior citizens, they can't help it, so we're going to give them a pass. Listen, there is fruit that is produced in people's lives that you and I, on the human basis, you cannot see. We are so addicted to the pharisaical lineup and the pharisaical system, we don't even know it. We're gauging brothers and sisters in Christ, whether they're brethren or not, by whether or not all of their action lines up to what we think it ought to be. Folks, I've been on this wheel before. I've been on that hamster wheel that you just keep you just keep running around and you're not making any progress. And you say, boy, this is the Christian life. I've been running on this hamster wheel, yet my assurance isn't getting any stronger. See, these evidences sometimes are difficult to see. Think about what Peter was talking about when he was talking about some of the fruit in that passage we read in 2 Peter. We like to identify everything with outwardly, I want to see your knowledge. Outwardly, I want to see your temperance. Outwardly, I want to see your patience. Outwardly, I want to see your godliness. Outwardly, I want to see your brotherly kindness. Outwardly, I want to see your charity. But notice what he says, For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a whole study on that right there. Yet, all of these foundational stones are given that we may know. The last phrase, some have identified this as a fourth foundation. I'm just going to, we'll just read it. It says, and as a fruit thereof, keeping the heart both humble and holy. Holy. Now, we know that in John chapter 10 and Philippians chapter 1, God has promised to keep those who are truly his saved unto the end. In chapter 17 of the confession, we did weeks-long study of the perseverance of the saints. And we talked about how that all believers will persevere to the end. All of them will be brought to the very end and that you can know for sure that you will be saved in eternity. But I like the fact, and again, I told you, I believe the confession writers, while not infallible in their humanity, again, the writers of the confession were not God. The confession is not an inspired document. It never supersedes the scriptures. But we believe that the confession most closely shows and teaches what scripture teaches us about who God is, about salvation, about the laws of God, about everything, the confession writers, I believe, were very, very intentional when they left this last phrase. Keeping the heart both humble and holy. For the accusation that goes against a the Reformed theology crowd like us, you realize how important humility is. And if you have allowed the doctrines of grace to make you an arrogant, pompous, holier, righteous, more righteous than thou person, you have missed the point. These doctrines humble you. They do not feed pride. Yet people who don't understand this say, you're all those proud, arrogant theologians who are only worried about doctrine. Folks, that is not what this should be producing. Our assurance should not produce arrogance. It should not produce pride. It should produce Humility and further holiness. That is a fruit of true holiness. Humility. And by the way, lest we think, I'm glad we've conquered humility, I would ask you to look at your own humility again. Because the most dangerous and most difficult struggle that you and I are ever going to have overcoming is our own stinking pride. And that's only word I can use for it. Stinking pride, that's what it is. We're so prideful, we won't even admit how prideful we are. We'll identify pride in another person 10 miles away. We'll identify pride in a person 1,000 miles away on the internet, won't we? We'll see a social media, but boy, they're so filled with pride. I'm glad I'm not like them. Yeah, just like the Pharisee and the publican. The Pharisee did everything according to the outward, and yet the publican says, I can't even look to God, and all I can do is hold my head down and smoke myself on the chest, and say, God, be merciful to me, to sinner. That's what the doctors of grace ought to do to you, is they bring you to a point of, man, I still need God's mercy. I still need God's grace. Many people object to the doctrine of assurance of salvation by saying that it will lead to carelessness and pride. There are people who say, you can't teach this in a church because you'll never get anybody to do anything. Folks, again... Our church is not about convincing you or manipulating you to do something. We don't have rally preaching services here to try to rally you to do what you know you ought to do. And to take something and say, I've really got to play on your heartstrings and your emotions and make you respond. No, it's just the word. Everyone who has a true hope has a true assurance. 1 John 3 verses 1 through 3 tells us This hope will make a man or a woman purify themselves. Let me finish with this. 1 John 3, verses 1 through 3, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. Beloved, now are we the sons of God, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And every man that hath this hope in him, look at this, purifieth himself, even as he is pure. Whosoever committeth sin transgresseth also the law, for sin is the transgression of the law. That purifying himself. This isn't just sitting back and saying, okay, God's just got to do all the work, I do nothing. No, back to our text, Paul, or Peter says, add to your faith with diligence. These are the very foundational stones in which this stands. Let's go ahead and stand. We'll be be dismissed in prayer this morning. I know I've gone longer today, but I wanted to cover this all in one one, uh, teaching time. Uh, Next week, we're going to move on to paragraph number three, which is a continuation of this infallible assurance. And if you'll do something for me, again, I just simply ask these things. I I think it'll help you. See if you can, through the next week, come up with a definition or what you believe when I say the phrase essence of faith means, okay? Essence of faith, okay? So think about that terminology throughout the week, and then that will kind of be the subject we're going to deal with next week as we contrast it with this infallible assurance. Our Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this time. We thank you for the ability to be in your word this morning. And Lord, we would be remiss today if we did not praise and thank you for the blood of Christ and the righteousness of Christ. Lord, I certainly pray that anyone here today who has been converted, they know that they are a child of God. And if they are still struggling with assurance today, Lord, I pray that your word has been a help and an encouragement to them. But Father, we also know that even in a study like this, There may be still those who have yet to repent and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we know that salvation is of the Lord. And according to your will, you will open their eyes, unstop their ears, make them willing to believe in the appointed hour. But Lord, if today would be that day, how we certainly would rejoice that another soul has been awakened to his need of Christ. And Father, I pray that that would be our heart's utmost desire is to see people come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior. Father, I pray that you bless this time of fellowship. Lord, may our interactions be edifying, may they be encouraging, and may we truly rejoice in being children of God. We thank you, we praise you, and it's in Christ's name I pray and ask these things. Amen.